Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the Brad Wilcox Imbroglio. On February 6, 2022, Brad Wilcox, a counselor in the General Young Men's Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, gave a fireside in Alpine, Utah. It was a multi-stake fireside for the youth of the church. Brad Wilcox is not only a general officer in the LDS church, he is also a professor of ancient scripture at BYU. He has become somewhat well-known for the talks he gives to the youth of the church and which he has done for many, many years now. In fact, almost identical versions of the talk he gave on February 6, 2022 were found on the internet dating back as far as two years ago. It is clear from the video of this fireside that Brad Wilcox has his talk largely memorized. He refers to no notes during the course of his talk. In fact, if you watch the video, you will see that the only time he uses notes is to refresh his memory as to the names of the people who played the piano, gave the opening prayer, and conducted the meeting in order to thank them by name. Everything else was completely done without notes of any kind. This talk was so controversial that it ended up creating a firestorm across the internet. And yet, as I say, it was a talk that he has given many times before. And in fact, it is the same kind of Mormonism that I heard growing up in the church. And by growing up, I mean after I joined the church in 1978 at the age of 18. This was common standard fare Mormonism of my youth. And one of the interesting things about Brad Wilcox's fireside is not so much that he's saying new things or new ideas that are controversial, but that he is still continuing to speak the ideas and concepts from 40 years ago. So the difference isn't so much with what he said, but how society has changed in the past 40 years. And that is, by and large, probably a good thing. The other thing that's interesting about his fireside is that this is not so much an indictment, if indictment there be, of Brad Wilcox, as much as it is an indictment, I think, of the LDS Church. Because what Brad Wilcox's talk did was reveal the seamy underside of the LDS Church in this regard. The LDS Church has for years now been trying to recreate its image from the church that fought against and was resistant to allowing black members to have the priesthood if they were men and to go to the temple if they were men or women. And they resisted that until 1978, at which point a revelation was received saying, just kidding. No, seriously, the revelation said that now all worthy men could have the priesthood, which is a nice way of saying that black people can have it too now. And even more recently, under the direction of President Russell M. Nelson, the church has created very public ties with the NAACP. There have been photo ops with leaders of the NAACP and President Nelson and other leaders of the church. And what Brad Wilcox's talk reveals is that even while the church is publicly proclaiming its image as the friend to black people and the friend to civil rights, and while the church is posing itself publicly as the greatest enemy to racism, nevertheless, behind the scenes and behind closed doors, talks are being given by general officers of the church, such as Brad Wilcox, that continue to reflect the Mormon racism of days gone by. In other words, it is not dead. It continues to live, but it is living under the surface of that public veneer that the LDS Church wants the world to see. What was it H.P. Lovecraft said? 
That does not die, which can eternal lie. And this racism in the LDS church has not died. And at least up until February 6, 2022, it continues to lie under the surface of the LDS church. Because Brad Wilcox is not only a general officer and a professor of ancient scripture at BYU, and because Brad Wilcox has given this talk many, many times in the past for years now, it is virtually inconceivable that leaders in the church were not aware to some degree of what it was he was teaching and what it was he was saying, specifically as it relates to black people and the priesthood. And that formed perhaps the most controversial remark that Brad Wilcox made in his entire fireside. Now, it certainly wasn't the only controversial thing that he said. In fact, he spoke for about 45 minutes to this group of hundreds of young Latter-day Saints. And he said a number of controversial things. In fact, it seemed like he was having a contest to see how many bad arguments and wrong-headed things he could cram into 45 minutes. And I think he broke the record, actually. I think that Brad Wilcox just got the gold medal in the category of bad arguments. Not only is it of concern that Brad Wilcox is still saying these kinds of things regarding blacks in the priesthood, and we'll get to that comment. I expect that most of you who are listening to this podcast already know exactly what it was that Brad Wilcox said in that regard, because as I say, it really created a firestorm. So it's not just that he said it, but that he's been saying it for years and years. He's been saying it over and over, and every time he's been saying it, he has been saying it to a packed house of hundreds of faithful Latter-day Saint youth, which means that over the years, he has inculcated these wrong-headed ideas into the skulls of literally thousands upon thousands of Latter-day Saint youth who are going to listen to him and take what he says as gospel because he is a church leader. They will believe it is true. They will carry those ideas with them as they go on to achieve ranks of leadership in the LDS church. And that, to my mind, is perhaps the most concerning thing about this entire affair. So what I have done is I have gone through the entire talk by Brad Wilcox. I have singled out a few clips, a few audio clips of what he said that I think are worthy of commenting on. His talk is structured in the following way. He gives an introduction in which he talks about a huge meeting of youth a huge conference that is supposed to take place this summer, the summer of 2022, where he expects 150,000 Latter-day Saint youth to attend. And then he gets into the meat of his talk by framing it around the word gospel. He uses the word gospel as an acronym, each letter standing for a gospel principle. For instance, the G in gospel stands for Godhead. The O in gospel stands for only true church. The S in gospel stands for spirit. The P stands for priesthood. The E stands for everyone, if I'm remembering this correctly, and the L stands for living prophets. The E standing for everyone, by the way, has to do with everyone getting saved because of the temple. So gospel doesn't have a T in it, so he couldn't say temple, but he manages to work it in there under the heading of E for everyone. It's sort of like that old corny song that I heard when I was a kid about mother. M is for the million things she gave me. O means only that she's growing old. T is for the tears she shed to save me. H is for her heart of purest gold. E is for her eyes with love light shining. R means right, and right she'll always be. Put them all together, they spell mother, a word that means the world to me. So Brad Wilcox is giving his version of this mother song from many, many years ago. In fact, I have a friend who found on the internet an evangelical YouTube video that uses the word gospel 
once again as an acronym in order to teach about the evangelical gospel of Jesus Christ. And this evangelical video about gospel dates back to 10 years ago when it was posted on the internet. So it is possible that there may be an antecedent that Brad Wilcox was using in order to come up with his version of the LDS gospel acronym. Be that as it may, Brad Wilcox has a number of things to say in this fireside, so let's get to them. The first clip I want to play comes from the introduction, where he's talking about all the youth going to this conference in summer and encouraging them that no matter what they have planned, they need to cancel it in order to make it to this conference. That's how important it is going to be. And then he totally name drops Elder Uchtdorf. And Brad said he was talking with Elder Uchtdorf the other day about the conference. And this is what Brad Wilcox says Elder Uchtdorf told him. You know, I was in a meeting with Elder Uchtdorf a couple of weeks ago, and he said, we need FSY, not only to bolster and strengthen the youth, but we need this to be able to strengthen their parents. He says, when the t- Teenagers come home this summer from FSY and they're standing at their pulpit in their in their home ward and they're bearing testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel. He says, maybe that's going to get the parents to quit fighting about vaccines and masks long enough to remember they're members of the true church of Jesus Christ. Now, anybody who's listening to this podcast at the time it's released will know the historical context for that comment. But let me say briefly that right now we are toward what is hopefully the end of a two-year pandemic regarding the coronavirus. At the commencement of this pandemic, back in April of 2020, President Russell M. Nelson enjoined the church and indeed the entire world to engage in a day of fasting and prayer to turn back the effects of the COVID pandemic. Well, the day of fasting was had and nothing happened. If anything, it got worse, not better. So President Nelson, not to be deterred, calls for a second day of fasting and prayer, only a few weeks after the first. Well, the second day of fasting and prayer was held with similar results. The pandemic continued to rage on for what is now approaching two years since those days of fasting and prayer. Sometime around mid-2021, in other words, a year later, President Nelson finally came out and being the medical man that he is, encouraged members of the church to get the vaccines that had been developed to protect people against COVID. And this alone, this suggestion that the members get a vaccine created its own minor controversy within the church. Minor may be too small a word. It actually has the potential to create a schism within the church because many people both inside the church and outside the church came to the conclusion that they did not want to take this vaccine, that it was a bad idea. And whether those ideas are valid is not really the point of this podcast. The point is that people who were members of the church made their own independent decision that they did not want to get the vaccine. And when President Nelson suggested that they do, they dug in their heels, or at least many of them dug in their heels and said, no, we won't. So now what Brad Wilcox is doing is quoting Elder Uchtdorf to the effect that those members of the church who refuse to go along with President Nelson's suggestion that they get vaccines are not really Latter-day Saints. That's what he means when he says that those youth will come back from the conference and they'll be all aglow with their testimonies. They'll be such great examples that maybe, maybe their parents will forget about arguing about vaccines for a while and remember that they are Latter-day Saints. So here, Elder Wilcox gets into his talk the age-old axiom that when the leaders speak, the thinking has been done. And it doesn't make any difference if it's on a religious issue or a medical issue or a political issue. 
Your views on those subjects, no matter what they are, need to bend the knee and be subservient to any suggestions that the president of the church might take it into his head to make. Next, Brad Wilcox is going to talk about how many people are leaving the LDS church, that there is a pandemic of apostasy, so to speak, going on among members of the church. And he does this first by asking the hundreds of youth who are present to raise their hand if they know somebody who has left the church. And indeed, although we cannot see the hands raised in the video because it's focused on the front of the room where Elder Wilcox is standing, we know that many, many hands were raised because of the comment that Brad Wilcox says when he sees all the hands that are raised. Now, you can see that those numbers are going down in every category. And uh, you don't need a newspaper to tell you that. Because how many of you know somebody who used to go to church who no longer goes to church? Raise your hands if you know somebody. Yeah, look at all those hands. Now, strangely, after having shown by a raise of hands that there are so many people leaving the church today, Brad Wilcox goes on to say it's not really as bad as it looks. Now, let me tell you two things about that. Number one, our church is doing much better than many churches. As people are turning away in a secular world from all things religious, um, many churches are being hurt by it. Our church is weathering that storm much better than most churches, and especially much better than most Christian churches. I know you think, whoa, but everybody's leaving the church. No, if you actually look at the numbers, there's not any more leaving now than have left at any generation in the history of the church. People left in Kirtland, Ohio. People left once the saints moved to Salt Lake. I mean, people have left the church in every generation, and the numbers aren't that different. The difference is that now people leave very publicly, where people used to just step away and nobody knew about it. Now they leave on TikTok, and thousands of people watch them as they sit and gripe about the church. And so because it's so public, then we think, oh, everybody's doing it. But that's not the case. The church is strong. The youth of the church are strong. The young single adults of the church are strong. And there's not that many more leaving now than there were when I was growing up. It's just happening in a much more public way. So here's where we start to hear a mixed message of sorts from Elder Wilcox. And this isn't the first mixed message we will get. He will start off in many instances, like here, stating something or demonstrating something like how many members are leaving the LDS church. And then he will reverse himself and undercut his argument by saying it's not really as bad as it looks. It's really only because it's so much more public and so much more vocal when people leave the church. So the problem I see here is that the hands that get raised at the beginning of his comments about how many young people know somebody who have left the church has nothing to do with how vocal they are being when they leave the church. So I'm just thinking that if your point is going to end up being that not that many people are leaving the church as it appears, you probably shouldn't start the exercise by having your audience raise their hand if they know somebody who's left the church and then remarking how many hands are being raised. It is also clear that Brad Wilcox is not being completely ingenuous with his audience when he says that really no more people are leaving now than at any other point in history. This is directly contradicted by none other than, than church historian Marlon Jensen, who a little over a decade ago now said that there has never been so much apostasy in the church 
since the days of Kirtland, Ohio, when members were fleeing the church like rats off the Titanic over the Kirtland banking disaster. That was an apex of apostasy among members and indeed leaders in the LDS church. So when Marlon Jensen said in 2010 or 2011 that the church has not experienced so much apostasy since the days of Kirtland, he's talking about what we all know to be the case is that the number of people leaving the church has never been so great since the very earliest days of the church in the 1830s. And if anything, things have only gotten worse in the past 10 years since Marlon Jensen made that statement. So I think Brad Wilcox is not really being straight with his audience when he says that people are not leaving the church now any more than they left in his generation when he was young or at any other time in the church. That is simply not correct. Now we're at the part of Brad Wilcox's talk where he's going to get into the meat of things with his gospel acronym. And he's also going to begin to repeat a theme that he wants to emphasize at the end of each of the six sections under the gospel acronym. And that theme is that if you leave this church, you miss everything. You miss everything. Yes, he repeats it just the way I did. And he also says, I don't want to leave that. I don't want to say goodbye to that. And you shouldn't either. So here is the first iteration of that theme, which he will develop further on as he gets into his talk. So tonight, let's talk about six different doctrines that you find here in the church that you can't find elsewhere. Maybe some people can leave some churches and they don't miss that much. But you leave this church, you miss everything. You miss everything. Now Brad Wilcox has his audience warmed up to hear the gospel acronym, which he introduces now. Let's talk about the blessings of the gospel that you can only find here. We're going to tie each one up to a letter in the word gospel. G-O-S-P-E-L. As easily as you can spell the word, you're going to be able to remember what we learned. And when you go home and your mom says, what did you learn at the fireside? You're actually going to be able to tell her. And that will be a miracle. G, G stands for Godhead. G stands for Godhead. Our view of the Godhead is very different than the view of many Christians. Most Christians believe that God and Jesus are the same being. And that God slash Jesus is a spirit. And we don't believe that. We know that God and Jesus are separate beings and that they have physical, tangible, perfected bodies. Well, how do we know that? Well, we could turn to some scriptures that talk about it, but mostly we know it because of Joseph Smith. He saw them. That's what Jackson was playing about when he played that song. He saw them. Here, of course, Brad Wilcox is referring to the first vision, or at least the accounts after the 1832 account, where Joseph Smith mentions not seeing two people, but only Jesus Christ. In addition, this being a vision, it does not serve as a basis for Joseph Smith's teaching that they have bodies of flesh and bone. He would not have known that from a vision. He did enunciate that finally in 1843. Joseph Smith did not enunciate that idea about God until the end of his ministry in 1843, which was very different from what he proposed about God in 1832 when he finally got down to writing about his first vision account 12 years earlier in 1820. Now Brad Wilcox makes a very interesting argument. Yeah, but maybe Joseph Smith lied. If you haven't heard that yet, you certainly will. 
Lots of people say, oh, he just made it all up. He just made up that story. But people who go there don't understand why we lie. Because you certainly don't lie in an effort to be found out. You don't tell your teacher, I didn't get my homework done because aliens beamed down and sucked it into the mother ship. No, your teacher's never going to believe that. So what do you tell? Well, not you, because you don't lie. But what do your friends tell the teacher? Yeah, the dog ate my homework. Oh, my gosh, my mom washed it in the washing machine. Oh, the one I hear at BYU where little children have signed an honor code is my printer broke. Every time a paper is due, you have no idea how many broken printers fill Utah Valley. It's, it's just an epidemic. Brad Wilcox has already referred to the youth of the church in front of him at the fireside as little children. Now he goes a step further and refers to BYU students as little children. He additionally accuses many of them of violating the honor code by lying when it's time to turn in their papers that they can't turn them in because the printer is broken when actually the printer is not broken. It is not clear how well this accusation would go over with BYU students or their parents, but what is clear is that Brad Wilcox has a very low opinion of many of his students. And now Brad Wilcox continues with his argument to show why it is that Joseph Smith was not lying when he claimed to have the first vision. Listen closely to his line of reasoning, because I think you'll find the flaw in it. Now, why do they say that to me? Because it's something I might believe. Do you think Joseph Smith was that different? If he were lying, then he would have said what everybody wanted to hear. He would have said, I saw God, and God and Jesus are one being, and God and Jesus are spirit. That's what people wanted to hear. That's what they would have believed. And yet he didn't say that. He said, God and Jesus are separate beings with physical, tangible, perfected bodies. Whoa, that is so far out of the realm of believability that Joseph Smith proves himself either a horrible liar, I mean, he was bad at it, or a speaker of truth. Did you catch the flaw in the argument? Now, I addressed this very issue in an earlier podcast called Arguing Against the Evidence. There, I caught Joseph Fielding Smith, church historian and apostle, red-handed, making the same argument that Brad Wilcox has just made. And perhaps Brad Wilcox got this argument from Joseph Fielding Smith himself. But the argument is that Joseph Smith was not lying when he came out of the grove and said that he saw God the Father and Jesus Christ because Everybody at the time believed that they were one being, that they were not two separate beings. And therefore, if Joseph Smith were lying about it, he would give a lie that would be acceptable to most people. In other words, he would come out of the grove saying he saw only one being. And the fact that he saw two shows that he's telling the truth, that he's not lying. The problem with this argument is, of course, that Joseph Smith in his 1832 account did exactly what Brad Wilcox and earlier Joseph Fielding Smith said Joseph Smith would say if he were lying. He said he saw one being, and that being was Jesus Christ. The 1832 account completely confutes Brad Wilcox's argument, and he knows it. You don't get to be a general president of the young men's in this church, and you don't get to be 
a professor of ancient scripture at BYU, and you don't get to be on the front line of apologetics with the youth of the church without knowing about the 1832 account of the first vision. That is simply a defense that will not wash. But in a larger sense, it really doesn't make any difference if Brad Wilcox knows about the 1832 account of the first vision, even though obviously he does, because you've got to be very careful when you're giving a scenario in which Joseph Smith would be a liar when the evidence itself shows that that scenario is exactly what happened. Not only does the 1832 account of the first vision refute Brad Wilcox's argument, but also the 1835 Lectures on Faith, specifically Lecture 5. Now, the Lectures on Faith were included in the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants when it rolled off the press in 1835. In fact, the Lectures on Faith were first before the other revelations. The Lectures on Faith were the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. And Lecture 5 of the Lectures on Faith elaborates upon Joseph Smith's original view as expressed in the Book of Mormon and in the 1832 account of the first vision by positing that God is not one being who appears in the different modes of Father, Son, or Holy Ghost to individuals as occasion may permit, but instead he is binatarian, two beings, the Father and the Son. And in Lecture 5, he makes it clear that the Son has a body of flesh and bones, But the Father has a body of spirit, not flesh and bones, which may sound surprising to people who've never read the lectures on faith. The Holy Ghost is not a separate personage in Lecture 5, but he is simply the mind of God, the mind that the Father and the Son share. So once again, a two-person Godhead in 1835, God the Father who has a body of spirit, God the Son who has a body of flesh and bones, and the Holy Ghost who is not a separate personage, but simply the mind that is shared between the two. Lecture 5 also contradicts what Brad Wilcox is saying Joseph Smith taught from the beginning. Now, Joseph Smith did teach this in 1843, i.e. the idea that there are three separate personages, with God the Father having a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, and the Holy Ghost being a personage of spirit, but it was not always that way. That was the end of the development of the Godhead in Joseph Smith's view, not the beginning or even intermediary steps toward that end. The irony is that next, Brad Wilcox will actually quote from the Lectures on Faith in order to support his point. This is the part where the Lectures on Faith talk about that true faith can only be found or developed by having a correct knowledge of the attributes of God and a knowledge that the path that we're walking is in accordance with what God wants us to do. Joseph Smith himself taught that true faith isn't just believing there's some God out there in the universe. True faith isn't just believing in some higher power. True faith is knowing God, knowing his attributes, what he's like, knowing his plan for us, and knowing that our lives are being lived in accordance with that plan. So all I'm saying is it's going to be a hard argument for Brad Wilcox to make that he was not aware of the contents of the lectures on faith when he quotes from a different lecture on faith in the very same talk. He now goes to his refrain about how he doesn't want to walk away from a church that has the correct knowledge of the Godhead. So you want to walk away from the church? Say goodbye to your whole concept of God. Brad Wilcox next tells a story that is almost certainly apocryphal about a BYU student who came up to him and told him that he doesn't believe in Joseph Smith anymore, but he does continue to believe in God and Jesus Christ, and how Brad Wilcox caught him in his words and pointed out what a hypocrite 
the student was. I had some kid at BYU say to me, I don't believe in Joseph Smith anymore, but I still believe in God and Jesus. And I said, look, I don't mean to be rude, but do you realize how stupid you just sounded? He's like, what? I said, you don't believe in Joseph Smith, but you still believe in God and Jesus. You separated them. Who taught you to do that? Who taught you that they're separate beings? Joseph Smith. So don't tell me you don't believe in Joseph Smith anymore when your whole concept of God, your whole covenant relationship with him is thanks to Joseph Smith. Now, the reason I think this is clearly an apocryphal story is because what Brad Wilcox is saying is that a student at BYU came up to him as a professor and announced that the student does not believe in Joseph Smith anymore. My question is, what student is going to do that? Because that is going to be a one-way ticket to Palookaville, i.e. outside of BYU. That is going to be a violation of the Honor Code, which could be reported to the Honor Code office with deleterious results to the student. I'm not saying this is completely made up. I'm just saying that I have my doubts. But perhaps more importantly, all this student said when he says, I believe in God and Jesus Christ, is what any Protestant would say who believes in the Trinity, what any Catholic would say who believes in the Trinity. In other words, saying you believe in God and Jesus Christ does not mean you believe that they are separate beings with bodies of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, as Joseph Smith said in 1843. And yet, Brad Wilcox seizes upon this statement by the student to say that he sounds stupid in saying it this way, and that the only reason he says it this way is because of Joseph Smith in the first place. I find this a weak and unconvincing argument, if not a little insulting, both to the BYU student as well as to the audience Brad Wilcox is addressing. So now we're done with G, let's get to O, shall we? O stands for only true church. O stands for? How many of you have ever heard somebody testify that this is the only true church? How many have ever said those words? Yeah, we hear them, we say them all the time. But some people get kind of bent out of shape when you say those words. If you haven't yet run into somebody who gets a little uptight, When you say this is the only true church, then you will run into somebody who will get uptight because they don't like that. They don't think that sounds very tolerant. And in today's world, tolerance trumps all. So by hang, we better be tolerant and we sure don't want anybody to feel bad because we say we're the only true church. My experience has been that most people that have trouble with the church's pronouncement that it is the only true church upon the face of the earth has less to do with the exclusivity of such a statement, though the exclusivity does cause a lot of people concerns, but more to do with the fact that such a minuscule number of people upon the planet earth have been reached by the LDS church's message and have joined the LDS Church. In other words, it seems a very ineffective way for God to get his one true church into the lives and hearts of as many of his children as possible. Others also have problems with the position that God has in the 1838 account with members of other religions, where Jesus states that their creeds are an abomination and the professors of those creeds are all corrupt. Pretty strong language against people who are Christians and sincerely trying to follow Christ according to the dictates of their own conscience and to the best of their ability and according to the light that God has given them. But no, abominations corrupt. No soup for you. Come back one year. 
And Brad Wilcox himself seems to recognize that there's an issue here because what he wants to do now is he wants to characterize it, not as something where it's a competition between churches, but it's actually an invitation to members of other churches. In other words, our exclusiveness, our saying that we have all the truth and all the priesthood that leads to salvation and exaltation and no other church does, is somehow not a competition, it's an invitation. The reason that people get uptight is because they don't understand why we say it. We're not having a competition. How many of you have ever gone to a high school game? How many have ever yelled these words? We're number one. We're number one. How many have ever yelled those words? Do you realize that every high school in the nation yells those words? I have never been to a high school game and heard people scream, we're number 439, we're number 400. No, everybody's number one. Why? Because it's a spirit of competition. But we're not screaming we're number one, saying we're better than everybody else. We're saying we're the only true church in a spirit of invitation. Here, Brad Wilcox tries to draw a distinction between what the church is doing, saying that it's number one, i.e. it's the only true church, not being a spirit of competition, but just a spirit of invitation. Well, the problem with that argument is that the two ideas of competition and invitation are not mutually exclusive. It is not competition or invitation. It is competition and invitation. My experience was that one of the chief joys of being a Mormon was the ability to look down on the beliefs of others as inferior, apostate, and benighted. And if that's not a spirit of competition, I don't know what is. I have been engaged in many discussions and even arguments with members of other religious faiths over the subject of who is right and who is wrong. And if that's not the spirit of competition, I don't know what is. When Brad Wilcox talks about high school teams saying we're number one and nobody says we're number 463 or whatever the number is, the reality of the situation is that when you apply it to churches, the LDS church is saying we're number one and everybody else is number 463. But nobody else is number one, only the LDS church. And if that's not a spirit of competition, I don't know what is. I remember being with the other elders at the Missionary Training Center back in 1979 and relishing the fact that we, as young elders, had more priesthood authority in our little finger than the Pope of the Catholic Church had in his whole body. Sound like competition? So I am unpersuaded by this distinction that Brad Wilcox makes between competition and invitation. To me, it sounds like a distinction without a difference. And now, as if to cement the fact that it really is a competition, Brad Wilcox is going to quote from Boyd K. Packer, where Boyd K. Packer used the analogy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, i.e. Mormonism being like playing a piano, where we have all 88 keys and can play complete and wonderful songs, whereas other churches have only a few keys that they hit over and over again. And Brad Wilcox will say, if you want to play chopsticks for the rest of your life, that's up to you, but I'd rather be playing beautiful music using all 88 keys. That, to me, sounds like a competition as well. In fact, I think there was a movie back in the 1970s about pianists competing with each other called The Competition. President Boyd K. Packer used to say, truth's like a piano keyboard. Some churches play a few notes. Some churches play several octaves but we're the only church that has a whole piano. 
So when we are saying we're the only true church, we're just inviting people to come and see what we can add to the truths that already fill their lives. If they think they can play some pretty music now, man, we want them to know that they can play like Jackson. I mean, we want them to know that they can play with the whole piano. And I don't want to lose the whole piano. You walk away from the church, say goodbye to the whole piano, have fun playing chopsticks the rest of your life. I don't want to play chopsticks the rest of my life. I want to play like Jackson. And to do that, you have to have the whole piano. So to me, it sounds not only like it's a competition, it sounds like a competition where the opposing team is handicapped and can't possibly win against the overwhelming force and the 88 keys of the LDS church. So we've gone through G and we've gone through O. Now we're ready to go on to the letter S. S stands for spirit. Now I had a fight with a missionary companion once because he said, that Latter-day Saints are the only ones who can feel the spirit. And I said, "Uh uh-uh. And he said, "Uh uh-huh. And I said, "Uh uh-uh. He said, "Uh uh-uh. And that's how missionaries fight. And I said, look, if they can't feel the spirit, what do they feel on Christmas Eve when they're singing Silent Night and the little kids are all dressed in bathrobes doing the manger scene? What do they feel? He says, the spirit of the devil. I said, no, you can't feel the spirit of the devil when little kids are dressed in bathrobes. You can't feel the little spirit of the devil when they're singing Silent Night. What my companion was trying to say is that we do have something that sets us apart, but it's not the spirit. Muslims feel the spirit. Hindus feel the spirit. Jews feel the spirit. Catholics feel the spirit. The spirit will come and go in their lives. What we have that they don't have is the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that's the chance to have the spirit with you always. No, that doesn't sound like a competition at all, does it? But here Brad Wilcox sets forth the familiar claim that in the LDS church, we have the gift of the Holy Ghost. People outside the church can feel the spirit from time to time, but only in the LDS church do we get the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is the chance to have or the opportunity to have the Holy Ghost be with us always. This particular doctrine is problematic. It's one of the weakest theological points in LDS doctrine. And I think it stems largely from a misunderstanding of what the phrase, the gift of the Holy Ghost means. The question is, Is the gift the Holy Ghost itself, or is the gift something that the Holy Ghost gives to us? We know that a synonym for the Holy Ghost is the Spirit. We know that in the scriptures, particularly in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, and that to every member of the church is given a gift of the Spirit. So I think it is more likely that the gift of the Holy Ghost is the phrase that is used to talk about the gift of the Spirit that is given by the Holy Ghost to every member of the church of the church, not some different kind of gift that is the Holy Ghost itself. That framing of the issue leads to the problems that Elder Wilcox is going to encounter and try and overcome, though I don't think he overcomes them successfully. Because what's going to happen now is after having said the distinction and what makes the LDS church better is having the gift of the Holy Ghost, whereas other churches do not. He is now going to have to confront the issue that many youth, or at least some youth, tell him that they have never felt the Holy Ghost. 
And his response to that is to argue with them and to tell them, no, you don't know what you're feeling. You have felt the Holy Ghost. You feel it all the time. The problem is you just don't recognize it. And here we get to the point of dumbing down experiences with the Spirit to the point that they are unrecognizable from an experience of not having the Holy Ghost. When you've dumbed it down that far, you've pretty much done away with it altogether. Now, the good news is that most of you received that gift when you were eight years old. The bad news is that most of you received that gift when you were eight years old. And then young people say to me, Brother Wilcox, I've never felt the spirit. And I say, yeah, you have. They go, "Uh uh-uh. And they go, "Uh uh-huh. And they go, "Uh uh-uh. And then we're fighting again. I've never felt the spirit. No, of course you felt the spirit. Stephen Covey used to tell students at BYU, when they'd say, I've never felt the spirit, he'd say, you're like a fish. You're swimming around in the water and you're going, water? What water? I don't see any water. When does a fish notice the water? When he's out of the water. And then he goes, whoa, I was in the water all the time. Sometimes that's what has to happen with young Latter-day Saints. They have to do something stupid, distance themselves from the spirit. And then they say, I was feeling it all the time. I just didn't recognize it. So one might ask at this point, what use is the gift of the Holy Ghost if it is so inconsequential in a person's life that they don't even recognize that they're feeling it? But now Elder Wilcox goes even a step further beyond that and argues that it's actually a good thing that we don't feel the Holy Ghost all the time. We sing the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. I felt that fire, but I don't feel it every day. I'm kind of glad I don't feel it every day. I mean, you couldn't even get through your morning for peace sake. The alarm would go off and you'd be like, whoa, feeling the Spirit. Yeah. Then you'd be in the shower going, and you'd be pouring your Captain Crunch. I mean, you couldn't even get through the morning. So it's a good thing you're not feeling the spirit like a fire all the time. Sometimes I think maybe we ought to sing the spirit of God like a furnace is working. See, when it's a cold day outside and you walk into your house, you don't notice the furnace. None of you walk in your house and go, the furnace is working. So if we trace the logic of Brad Wilcox's argument, and logic may be too big a word for what he's talking about, he has actually gone from saying that the gift of the Holy Ghost is one of the things that makes the LDS church true, that the gift of the Holy Ghost is superior in that it gives you the chance to have the Holy Ghost with you all the time. He then says that you have the Holy Ghost with you and you're feeling it all the time, even if you don't recognize that you're feeling it. And then he caps it off by saying it's actually a good thing that we don't feel the Holy Ghost all the time. So if we start with the beginning and the end of that argument, you'll see that he starts off by saying that the gift of the Holy Ghost makes the church true because that gives members the chance to have the Holy Ghost all the time. And the end of the argument is it's a good thing that we don't feel the Holy Ghost all the time. I think it might be a good idea for Brad Wilcox to have a logician examine his talks before giving them in the future. But now Brad Wilcox is going to go even further and say the Holy Ghost isn't something remarkable. It's something that just makes you feel 
comfortable. Now, when do you notice the furnace? When it's not working. And then you don't sit there and say, I guess this is my new normal. No, you call somebody because you want to get it fixed because you want to feel, catch the word, comfortable. You want to feel comfortable. And that's how the spirit helps us feel. We don't always notice it, but it lets us get on with our lives. It lets us get on with what we're here in mortality to learn and to do. So just recognize that sometimes it's like a fire. Most times it's like a furnace, but you are feeling the spirit because it surrounds you. You have the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, once you have defined feeling the spirit as something that makes you feel comfortable, you have conversely defined feeling uncomfortable as something you experience when you are not feeling the spirit. Therefore, anything that you hear that makes you uncomfortable or question or doubt any of the truth claims of the LDS Church must be given by a source that is different from the Holy Ghost. According to Brad Wilcox's definition, the Holy Ghost is something you don't even recognize that you have as long as you are comfortable. And as long as you're comfortable, you're experiencing the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost becomes no longer a revelator of new and exciting information. Instead, it becomes a schoolmarm who keeps you in your seat where you belong. And once again, true to form, Brad Wilcox ends this segment by saying that if you leave the church, well, you're saying goodbye to the Holy Ghost. You know, that thing that you don't even feel that you have and that it's a good thing that you don't feel that you have. And it's something that just makes you feel comfortable with the status quo. Now you want to leave the church? Say goodbye to the gift of the Holy Ghost. Oh, you'll feel the spirit now and then. But you're not going to be able to feel it always. And that means you're going to miss the guidance. You're going to miss the testimony. You're going to miss the direction, the peace, the comfort, the sanctification that that spirit can bring into your life. I don't want to miss those things. I need them too desperately. Now, the reason Brad is repeating this refrain is because he wants to instill fear in his audience that if they leave the church, they'll be leaving everything that has meaning to them and there is nothing for them that they will find outside the church of any value. This is the fear tactic and the manipulation that he uses as the primary theme of his talk. P, P stands for priesthood, priesthood. How many of you used to play school? Okay, good. I'm glad to see those hands up. How many of you used to play church? I'm glad to see a few hands go up. My kids played church. They'd pull out the stuffed animals. They'd put them on the couch. They'd sing the song. They'd do the talk. Got a little nervous when my daughter started blessing the sacrament, but... um. Now, when Brad Wilcox starts talking about priesthood, he's going to immediately encounter the twin thorny issues relating to the priesthood having to do, first off, with the temple ban and the priesthood ban on black people up until 1978, and the fact that women, even today, cannot receive the priesthood. He's going to start this off by telling a story about playing church and how his kids used to play church in his family. And he gets to the part where he's talking about seeing his little daughter blessing the sacrament as she's playing church at home and says he got a little worried when that happened. This is supposed to be a punchline because obviously every Mormon knows that girls can't bless 
the sacrament. Why? Because they don't hold the priesthood, because they can't hold the priesthood. It doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are as a woman in the church, how accomplished you might be, or any other factor than the fact that you are a female. That disqualifies you from holding the priesthood. And I think it's unfortunate that he uses this as a punchline when he's talking about a little girl who has probably not yet realized that she is a member of an organization that's going to discriminate against her because of her gender and say, because you're a girl, you can never hold the priesthood, which means you can never bless the sacrament or do a hundred other things that only the men can do in the church by virtue of the priesthood. Brad Wilcox is now going to take this analogy of his little children playing church at home and say that is exactly what all other churches other than the LDS church are doing when they practice Christianity. They're playing church too. They'd, they'd play church. And I used to think, oh, that's so cute. It's so cute. But now I'm older and I realize it wasn't just cute. It's actually what most people in the world are doing. They're playing church. They're sincere. They want it to count. But they don't have the authority. They don't have God's permission. So that the things they do really count on earth and in eternity. Man, I want what I'm doing to count. And to be able to have that, we have to have the priesthood. We have to have that. But it's not a competition. Brad Wilcox now tells a story about a young lady he once knew who was going to get married. She was not a member of the church. She was getting married by a Protestant minister of some sort. And as Brad Wilcox relates this story, think about whether he's framing this as a competition or not. I uh, lived in Wyoming while I was getting my PhD, and I was working at the university in what they called the Writing Center. And in the writing center, people would come and get help with their papers. And I would supervise a few tutors who worked there with me. Well, one girl came late to work. And I said, where have you been? She says, I'm sorry, but I was at my wedding rehearsal. And I just, I'm just so upset. I said, maybe you shouldn't marry him. And she said, I'm not upset at my fiance. I'm upset at the preacher. I said, how can you be mad at a preacher? They're nice. She said, well, I'm not mad at the preacher. I just don't like those words. What words is she talking about? Till death do you part. Most churches don't say that anymore. Now they say, as long as you both shall live. It's the same thing. And she didn't like those words. She said, I feel like I'm getting divorced the day I'm getting married. I was like, whoa, this is like a missionary moment. This is a missionary moment. I mean, nope, this isn't sounding like a competition. Brad, come on, don't blow it. Don't blow it. So I said, in my church, we get married in the temple where we are sealed for time and all eternity. And she went, oh, I love that. And I said, fill the font. I'm going to baptize this girl right now. The thrill of victory. No, 
She didn't want to get baptized. She didn't even want to meet the missionaries. And the agony of defeat. But she did want to rewrite her wedding ceremony. So she went to the minister and she said, may I write my own ceremony? And he said, for an extra fee. So she paid the extra money and she wrote her own ceremony. So here Brad Wilcox has to insert the gratuitous slam on the Protestant minister for being paid to conduct a wedding ceremony. I have been contacted, by the way, by a man who was a chaplain in the military for many, many, many years, and he knows lots of ministers, and he assures me that this story is made up, that no minister is going to charge an additional amount for a person to themselves change the words of a wedding ceremony. The reason this story is told is not because it's true, It's to slam every other minister of every other religion for being paid. It is amazing that this canard continues to surface in the LDS Church even after the revelation some years ago that the modest stipend that President Gordon B. Hinckley said that general authorities get is actually a six-figure base salary. And this is how the myth that LDS leaders are not paid and the concomitant disdain for ministers of other religions for being paid once more raises its ugly head. When the revelation was made, or leaked, I should say, that LDS top leaders make six-figure base salaries every year, the response from the church was that it's only natural for these men to be paid because they're spending all their time in the ministry of the Lord. But isn't that exactly what Protestant ministers say too, and rightly so? They're spending all their time in the ministry of the Lord, so isn't it also appropriate for them to be paid for their efforts so they can keep body and soul together. And I will guarantee you that the vast majority of Protestant ministers and Catholic priests are not making six-figure base salaries. And I sat there in that Protestant church and listened as the preacher sealed them for time and all eternity. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm freaking out. I'm like, whoa, Everybody in the church was like, oh, that is so special. I was like, that is so wrong. That's just like wrong, like lightning bolt wrong. Why? It's a free country. They can say whatever they want to say. Why did I feel it was wrong? Because it's not a competition, right? Authority. No authority. It just didn't have permission to say those words. And so did it count eternally? No, because they were playing church. And in our church, we don't play church. We have the authority to make that count on earth and in heaven. And that is something I don't want to say goodbye to. Now, it is one thing to point out the difference between the LDS position as one claiming authority to seal couples for time and eternity and contrasting that with other religions that do not claim to have that authority. But I think it's another thing entirely to say that any other church outside the LDS church that claims to do any kind of ordinance with any kind of eternal effect is simply playing at church. That kind of attitude is the one I grew up with. And I'm glad to see that it's still alive and well in the LDS Church. Because what it makes sure of is that the youth of the LDS Church will grow up to be just as judgmental and dismissive of other religious faiths as Brad Wilcox is. Now, sadly, you live in a time where a lot of people get uptight about priesthood issues. 
It's one of the most glorious things we have in the church. And yet people want to sit and fight about it and get uptight about it. I don't know if people want to fight about priesthood issues as much as they are raising the question as to why blacks could not have the priesthood until 1978 and why women cannot have the priesthood even today. And those are the two issues that Brad Wilcox will now broach in his typical bumper sticker slogan fashion. Now, I don't mean to oversimplify a complex issue, but I sure think we make it a little harder than it needs to be. How come the blacks didn't get the priesthood until 1978? What's up with that, Brother Wilcox? What, Brigham Young was a jerk? Members of the church were prejudiced? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe instead of saying, why did the blacks have to wait until 1978? Maybe what we should be asking is, why did the whites and other races have to wait until 1829? 1,829 years they waited. And that is, of course, the one statement that Brad Wilcox made that generated the most controversy. He waves away the legitimate question of why blacks could not have the priesthood until 1978 by comparing it with a non-legitimate question of why couldn't white people have the priesthood until 1829. It is a ham-fisted distraction from the real issue, which does not move the needle one centimeter toward actually dealing with the issue. Instead, it suggests that... We shouldn't worry why blacks couldn't have the priesthood until 1978 because white people couldn't have the priesthood until 1829. This statement is wrong on many, many levels, so I will just talk about a couple of them here. First, at its heart, this is a tu-quo-que logical fallacy. That is a term that is used, which means, I know you are, but what am I? And what it describes is this. If I am criticizing someone for doing something that is wrong or unethical, it is common for the other person to say, oh yeah, well you do it too. But whether I do the same thing or not is irrelevant to the issue of whether the person I'm addressing does it too. In other words, it stems from the idea that two wrongs do make a right. Well, as we know, two wrongs don't make a right. So if I accuse somebody of plagiarism and their response is, oh, well, you've plagiarized too, that does nothing to respond to the original charge that they themselves are plagiarizing. It just shifts the focus off of them and onto somebody else in a way that has no logical connection to the issue at hand. And at bottom, this is what Brad Wilcox is suggesting. He is suggesting that it's not important that God was prejudiced toward black people and they did not get the priesthood until 1978 because God was also prejudiced to white people and they didn't get the priesthood until 1829. I would also suggest to Brad Wilcox that for a white man in the United States of America, who was also a church officer in the Young Men's Presidency, in the LDS Church, trying to claim superior victim status to black people is probably not a good look. And on top of this, Brad Wilcox knows the answer as to why white people and other races could not get the priesthood until 1829. He knows the LDS Church's position on it. And the LDS Church's position on it is that there was a little thing called the Great apostasy, that God's priesthood was taken from the earth 
at the death of the apostles that it was no longer to be found on the earth until God could raise up a nation, i.e. the United States of America, where freedom of religion was enshrined in the Constitution to the degree that once more God could restore his church with the priesthood to the face of the earth. In other words, Brad Wilcox knows that the long delay in white people getting the priesthood again between Jesus' time and 1829, of course, Jesus is a white person in the LDS church, but this delay until 1829 was not caused because of any kind of racism or skin color or anything like that. It was caused because of the great apostasy. And because he knows that, he should also know that the delay in white people getting the priesthood until 1829 has nothing to do with why black people did not get the priesthood until 1978. One has nothing to do with race, and the other has everything to do with race. Now, Brad Wilcox issued an apology shortly after this one statement went viral, and he said that he was sorry for the offense it caused and that he was simply trying to make a point that it is God's timing that determines when different groups of people get the priesthood. And indeed, he does go on to talk about the Gentiles and the Levites, as I thought he would when he initially started making this comment. And here's the rest of that comment, just to complete the record. Maybe instead of saying, why did the blacks have to wait until 1978? Maybe what we should be asking is, why did the whites and other races have to wait until 1829. 1,829 years they waited. And why did the Gentiles have to wait until after the Jews? And why did everybody in the house of Israel, except the tribe of Levi, have to wait until... When you look at it like that, then instead of trying to feel like you have to figure out God's timeline, we can just be grateful. Grateful right down to our socks that the blacks received the priesthood in 78. Grateful right down to our socks that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had the priesthood restored to them in 1829. Maybe we should just feel grateful. The problem I see with this line of argument is that if we say that God just has a timeline by which he is going to distribute the priesthood to different races of people, and that blacks end up being at the end of the bus on that particular timeline, that somehow that timeline is not itself racist in nature. Another problem with this statement I think, is that Brad Wilcox was simply dealing in a dismissive manner with a very difficult and thorny issue in LDS history, in LDS doctrine, and in the LDS version of prophets having doctrinal inerrancy. And he's trying to deal with that issue in a theoretical way with a room full of predominantly, if not completely, white youth in Alpine, Utah. I do not think that Brad Wilcox gave a second to think about the impact that his comments would have upon black members of the church. You know, the black members who were the victims of the priesthood ban up through 1978. And there are many educated, intelligent, and faithful, well, many might be the wrong word, there are some black members of the church, many of whom are faithful, who are intelligent, who are educated, who have borne with the church during this difficult time period, who know the history of the church with regard to the priesthood ban, who are glad that it is in the rearview mirror 
but who end up encountering time and again instances where it appears that the racism that the LDS Church said it let go of in 1978 continues to pop up in new and exciting and frankly disturbing places. One of the first places was back in 2012 when Professor Randy Bott talked to a reporter for the New York Times, I think it was, and explained to them that the reason that black people could not get the priesthood before 1978 is because they couldn't handle it. I believe he likened it to a 12-year-old coming to their dad and asking for the keys to the car. And the dad doesn't give the keys to the car to a 12-year-old. Why? Not because he doesn't love the 12-year-old, but because the 12-year-old is not ready to have the keys to the car. Randy Bott was a professor in the religion department. He was an extremely popular professor, and he, like Brad Wilcox, spoke and inculcated these racist ideas into thousands upon thousands of his students. Well, all that Randy Bott was doing was saying what the church had been saying all along. He wasn't saying anything new, and that's why it was so embarrassing to the church when it was made public. And as a result, Randy Bott was no longer professor at BYU, and he and his wife were quickly sent away on a mission outside of the country, I believe. So this is what happens when members of the church teach the doctrines of the church at the same time that the leaders of the church are trying to pretend to the outside world that they are advanced beyond that racist past. The church had to do something with Randy Bott to show publicly that it disavowed these kinds of teachings, and so they let him go. And one would think that after such a public dismissal of Randy Bott and such a public disavowal by church leaders of these kinds of teachings, that they would end. But that's not the case. Two years ago, after President Nelson had had his photo op with the NAACP, the church rolled out its new Come Follow Me student manual on the Book of Mormon. And in that student manual was a quote from Joseph Fielding Smith linking a black skin to a curse from God. This also raised quite a sensation, as you might imagine. And the church moved to quickly remove that offending passage from the manual, at least from the online version. And Elder Stevenson, who was slated to speak shortly thereafter to the NAACP, had to eat crow and apologize for that oversight. Oops, that slipped by us. I guess we didn't see that in there. That was done by somebody else. And the leaders of the church did not take responsibility, but they blamed it upon the rogue editors of the correlated materials. You know, those correlated materials that are supervised and approved by the leaders of the church. It was that episode that caused a great deal of consternation among many black members of the church who have suffered with the church so long only to find that whereas they thought the church was moving in a more tolerant and less racist direction, only to find out that it was still there bubbling just under the surface all the time. And a number of black members of the church got fed up at that point and said, okay, we're done. We've given you every shot to mend your ways, and apparently you're not really interested in doing so. And now, two years later, after that incident with the Come Follow Me manual, we have possibly the most popular youth speaker in the church, one who goes almost every weekend to address large groups of youth in these kinds of tri-stake or multi-stake firesides, not to mention a professor of ancient scripture at BYU who doubtless expresses similar ideas to thousands upon thousands more Latter-day Saint youth in that capacity, expressing the exact same kind of racist sentiments. Once again, Brad Wilcox was not thinking about the impact that his words would have on black members 
of the church. I can't imagine that that thought ever crossed his mind because if it did, I am sure that he never would have said these words in the first place. But he did. It was recorded. By the way, he knew it was being recorded. The camera was right there in front of his face for crying out loud. And the recording went viral and it exposed yet again that the church speaks out of both sides of its mouth. To the public and to the NAACP, it wants to present as progressive and having put its racism behind it. But in private church meetings, the same kind of racism continues unabated and undiluted. We'll see if Brad Wilcox does any better with the issue of women not having the priesthood, which is the issue he will address next. Yeah, but Brother Wilcox, how come the girls don't have the priesthood? I mean, that's what I want to know. How come the girls don't have the priesthood? What's up with that? Girls, you're going to hear a lot of people say a lot of things, and many of them say them with very angry voices. But just because somebody's angry doesn't necessarily make him or her right. Just because somebody's loud doesn't necessarily make him or her right. Just because somebody's arguments are illogical does not make him or her right. I was at a professional conference for BYU. I had a name tag. It said Brad Wilcox, Brigham Young University. Some lady walked up to me that I didn't even know. She sees my name tag and she's like, oh. Why don't you give women the priesthood? Just like that. And I said, good to meet you too. And then I asked, what's the priesthood? And she said, Well, I don't know, but I think the women should have it. Seriously? I don't know, but the women should have it. What's malaria? I don't know, but the women should have it. Really? Is that where we're going? I don't know what malaria is, but I think the women should have it. When you're arguing an issue about why women don't have the priesthood, it's probably not a good idea to compare the priesthood to something horrible. I know he's doing it as a joke, But the joke doesn't make any sense. It doesn't land as the saying goes. It does not advance his argument. Instead, it undercuts his argument. He is of the position that the priesthood is a positive thing. That's why it gets its own letter in gospel, right? P is for priesthood. It's like Cookie Monster. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. But this is P is for priesthood. You don't take something that you're arguing is a good thing and compare it to a bad thing in order to justify why it is that women don't get it. But he has other arrows in his quiver in this regard, which he will shoot from his bow now, and we will see if any of them do any better at hitting the target. Girls, listen closely, because I don't know that you'll ever have somebody explain it quite this point blank again. You have, a, you have access to every priesthood blessing. You just can't hold the priesthood. There is not one priesthood blessing that you are denied. You just can't hold the priesthood. And you serve with priesthood authority. You just can't hold the priesthood. When you are set apart in a class presidency or you're set apart as a missionary or in any calling in the church, you serve with priesthood authority. You just can't hold the priesthood. You will go to temples where you will be endowed with priesthood power. You just can't hold the priesthood. And you will dress in priesthood robes. You just can't hold the priesthood. How come the girls don't have the priesthood? What the heck are they talking about? 
Um, I think they're talking about how women can't hold the priesthood. Your life exudes priesthood. It's surrounded by priesthood. It emanates priesthood. You just can't hold the priesthood. So what is it that women don't have? You mean other than the priesthood? Two things. One, priesthood keys. And two, priesthood ordination. So you're finally agreeing with me that women can't hold the priesthood. Well, how come women don't have priesthood keys? Well, how come most men in the church don't have priesthood keys? I think we've heard this argument before. So just because there are only a few men in the church who hold priesthood keys, it's okay that no women in the church can hold the priesthood itself. This is argument by distraction at its finest. Priesthood keys are an organizational structure. An organizational structure that women have no part in. It's how God's house is a house of order. An order that women have no part in. And so not everybody needs them. Just those who are part of this organizational structure. Thank you. We get it, Elder Wilcox. Women have no part in the organizational structure of the church. So how many men in a ward have priesthood keys? The Spirit is whispering. The Spirit is whispering. Oh, you knew it. You knew it. I'm so proud of you. Let's name them. The bishop. Not a female. The elders quorum president. Not a female. The teachers quorum president. Not a female. And the deacons quorum president. Oh, that's a... Mm. Oh, wait a second. That's not a female either. So girls, don't mix keys up with influence. Don't mix keys up with influence? Who's talking about influence? Nobody's talking about influence. We're talking about priesthood, and you're talking about keys. And now all of a sudden, you're going to shift the subject oh so subtly over to something called influence and say that women have influence in the church and equate that to having the priesthood. But those are two completely separate things. You just shifted the terms. This is another well-known logical fallacy. The shifting of terms in the middle of an argument. You just shifted the subject of what is being discussed. I saw what you did there, Brad Wilcox. We're certainly not saying the only ones who have influence in the church are the bishop, the elders quorum president, the teachers quorum president, and the deacons quorum president. Once again, the subject is about women not having the priesthood, not women not having influence. Surely there are others at all levels of the church who have great influence without having keys. So don't mix those up. Don't, don't think that that's something that's needed to be able to make a difference. Um, I'm not sure that we're the ones mixing up priesthood keys with influence. I think you're the one doing that, Elder Wilcox. And don't call me Shirley. What else don't women have? Priesthood ordination. They're not ordained to the priesthood. And now we get to the heart of the matter. Women cannot be ordained to the priesthood, which is the recognized method in the LDS church in the 21st century for anybody to get the priesthood. You have to be ordained to the priesthood. You have to have hands laid upon your head by those who hold the priesthood in order to confer that priesthood upon you and ordain you to an office in the priesthood. Women cannot hold the priesthood, and therefore they also cannot hold any offices relating to the priesthood. And those offices are part of what Brad Wilcox calls the organizational structure of the church, which women cannot be a part of. 
because they are not permitted to hold the priesthood. But wait, maybe we're asking the wrong question again. Well, how come they're not ordained to the priesthood? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we should be asking, why don't they need to be? Girls, how many of you have ever entered a temple to perform ordinances? Okay, raise your hands high. Raise them high. Okay, do you realize that you have done something that no man on this earth can do? There is not a male on this planet who can enter a temple to perform ordinances without being ordained. And yet you just waltz right in. You walk right in. So what is it that sisters are bringing with them from a pre-mortal life that men are trying to learn through ordination? Maybe that's the question that ought to be keeping us up at night. So now we get into the old trope of how women are treated inequally and as inferiors in the LDS church because they are actually superior to the men. This is damning with faint praise and it happens all the time in the parlance of the LDS church when explaining why it is that women are not equal to the men, why women cannot hold the priesthood, why it's because they're so righteous. What do they bring with them from the pre-mortal existence that makes it so they don't have to be ordained to the priesthood in order to enter into the temple? They can just waltz right in there, can't they? Doesn't this show that they are in some mysterious and otherwise unspecified way superior to men? Isn't that what should be keeping us up at night? No, actually, the answer to this question is very simple. Women can go to the temple without being ordained to the priesthood because women are not permitted to be ordained to the priesthood. It's as simple as that. We have to get them in there some way to be married for time and all eternity to the men who do hold the priesthood. And because women can't hold the priesthood, they perforce have to be allowed to waltz into the temple without being ordained to it. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's not that complicated. It's really kind of simple and straightforward. And now as Brad Wilcox ends his discourse on P, we know what to expect. Once again, here comes the refrain of how much you will lose if you leave the church. You will leave the priesthood. And especially if you're a woman, if you leave the church, you will leave the priesthood that you were never allowed to have. You want to walk away from the church? Walk away from anything that lets anything in your life count or matter beyond this life. You're walking away from priesthood. And I don't want to live in that land where purpose becomes empty and where anything good has an end. I don't want to be there. I don't want that. I want to be able to have priesthood and that's what we've got in the church. Unless you're a woman, of course. So that covers Brad Wilcox's fireside from February 6, 2022, up through G-O-S-N-P. Frankly, E and L are not that interesting, and I've gone on for over an hour now. Just on the first four letters of gospel, I think I will let you listen to the last two letters and glean anything of value from those two letters that you find of worth. In the meantime, I'm going to say thank you so much for listening. 
You will note that I have resumed production of the Radio Free Mormon podcast, in addition to the Mormonism Live podcast that I co-host with Bill Reel every Wednesday at 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time. I am making room in my schedule to be able to produce these RFM podcasts by decreasing the amount of work I'm doing in the legal field. I am hoping and praying and urging and wishing and expecting that all of my listeners who find value in the Radio Free Mormon podcast who have not yet made a contribution or donation will do so, hopefully today. It doesn't have to be a lot. Many people make light work. As Elder Uchtdorf said, lift where you stand. And $5 a month is plenty. The common psychology is that if you're out there thinking, well, I could afford $5 a month, but what difference does $5 a month make? Believe me, it makes a lot of difference. If everybody who listens to this podcast donated $5 a month as a continuing, recurring monthly contribution, I would not be so concerned about making ends meet. So I don't like harping on this all the time, but I know that there is actually a majority and even a substantial majority of listeners to this program who have not made a recurring donation or a donation of any kind at all. I'm just asking, please do so. Please go to RadioFreeMormon.org. Make that recurring monthly contribution or donation today. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And thank you so much to all of you who listen. Thank you so much to all of you who do donate to the show. And thank you so much to all of you for making Radio Free Mormon the success that it is. I don't know about you, but I am having the time of my life. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Stop me, cause I'm having a good time, having a good time. The shooting star leaping through the sky.